The following episode was recorded before a live audience at the January 17th annual meeting of the World Affairs Council of San Antonio. It is a conversation with Port San Antonio President and CEO Jim Persbach. If you believe that your life is going to be a failure, you are going to fail. If you believe that you have an opportunity, you are going to find that opportunity. The world is empirically better today than it was 100 years ago. It is going to be empirically better 100 years from now than it is today. And what we need to do, especially now when so much information is available to people, is show them that there's always a great, big, beautiful tomorrow out there. But I'm not telling you that we're going to change the world. What I'm hoping we do is we create that sense of optimism. With no further ado, Jim, Eddie, please. Great to see you this evening. For those that are listening, the in-room audience is made up of members and prospective members of the World Affairs Council. And for the listeners, if you're not familiar with the World Affairs Council of San Antonio, you should be. It's a nonprofit citizens educational forum that focuses on foreign policy issues and how those policy issues affect our daily lives. I'm a proud member of the World Affairs Council and greatly enjoy their events. And if you would like more information on the World Affairs Council, please check out their website at WACOFSA.org. Again, I want to thank the board chair for the World Affairs Council, Elizabeth Lorenz, and I want to thank uh, the CEO, Armin Babajanian, for having us here tonight. We're going to learn a lot more, and it's my hope that tonight we all leave a little more educated about Port San Antonio. So with that, Jim, I want you to go back a little bit in time, because I think this is a jewel that is not necessarily fully appreciated by everyone in the ports host community. And I would include myself in that category, because over time, you learn more and more. At one point, this was Kelly Air Force Base, and it was a facility that was designed to keep people out. And now you're trying to bring people into the port. So... Um, let's start with a little bit about the history of, of Kelly and where we stand today. Sure. Kelly Air Force Base, for those of you who don't know, is really one of the most important aviation facilities on the entire planet. And here's how you know that. I knew about Kelly Air Force Base and the work that was being done here before I could find San Antonio on a map. And to put that in perspective, that was 1992. And in 1992, I was 21 years old. This uh, community uh, created something special. The first military flight ever took place at Fort Sam Houston. The general knows this because it's something we honor quite frequently. On March 2nd, 1910, Benjamin Floyd came down here with a Wright Flyer, had no idea how to fly it. The Army told him, you're going to figure that out. Put it together, took off, and did this just beautiful flight around Fort Sam Houston. Landed, and everybody was happy. You all know what a Wright Flyer looks like. It had no wheels, had no seat belts. So that afternoon, he took off and he did a second flight. And I like to tell the story, I think he saw somebody attractive because he had the first ever uncontrolled landing. <laughs> and it created a couple of things. Uh, he walked down to the saddle shop and he took a saddle and converted that into the first ever seat belt on an aircraft. He went down to the, uh, I think he called it the stables, army stuff I don't know much about. 
got a couple of wheels off of a wagon and created landing gear right here in San Antonio. And most importantly, it was the first ever appropriation for the repair, maintenance, or overhaul of a military aircraft. <laughs> and a few years later, because the folks at Fort Sam Houston and their horses and their marching didn't like these newfangled airplanes, the community got together and bought up a bunch of land down there on the southwest side of San Antonio, way out away from anybody, and created this. That picture, I think, was taken in 1920, just because the 20 down there in the bottom, so it was about three years after Camp Kelly was created. And what you see are some horse-drawn wagons, a steam-powered ambulance, not sure why it's there, but it was a good idea at the time, and a bunch of Curtis JN4 Jennies. And what it launched was the San Antonio that we know today. And it's something that means an awful lot to me. I could drive you around the port, and I'm happy to do it. And I will tell you that nobody in their right mind would build an air installation like this. But it was because while we knew what airplanes were going to be important, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so a couple of things happened. The way we fly airplanes, instrument flight rules, was created here in San Antonio. The way we maintain engines and transport engines was developed here in San Antonio. And we did some of the greatest work ever done on airplanes right here. And most of that was not done by active duty forces. Most of that was done by civil servants and people in this community. And it created some really special things. One of those was in 1948, the United States Army moved the Signals Intelligence Group here. They now sit on Security Hill, and you hear them called sometimes Air Force's Cyber, or the 16th Air Force. But all that electronic wizardry, was headquartered right here in San Antonio. And so I like to tell that story. It was a real pleasure when I got sent here to San Antonio because of an operation on that airfield. Because this is something that means a lot to me and means a lot to our aviation community. And I hope that it means a lot to all of you. Because what we are doing is standing on the shoulders of many, many people that came before us right in this community. So that's, uh, that's my history story. I got a lot more exciting stuff to tell. <laughs> But is there anybody in this room that didn't know the history of Kelly Air Force Base? Well, now you do, and I hope you, I hope you bear it in mind. Now, go back, because you talked about the seat belt, and, but prior to the landing gear, what was used? What was used was some, they, they looked like wooden sleds. And I have no idea why the Wright brothers thought that was a good idea. <laughs> they also, if you come down to Area 21, our museum at the Boeing Center, We've got a somewhat inaccurate version of a right flyer that you can fly. And what you'll notice is you don't sit down. Uh, it's a little awkward to get onto. Please don't wear a skirt or a dress because you actually lie facing forward. And you're going to find the wings are behind you and the rudder is in front of you. It was not a great idea in retrospect, but you got to start somewhere. <laughs> San Antonio has developed the reputation, a national reputation, of being the capital of all things cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. A lot of that credit goes to UTSA. I've been out of state where Governor Abbott has spoken, and he brags about San Antonio in this uh, capacity of, of cybersecurity. But a lot of that credit also goes to the port because you bring together not only cyber, but bioscience, weapon systems, uh, the defense industry, and many others. So Talk about how all these things are connected and about your collaborations with UTSA. San Antonio really is, no joking around, 
not just the cyber capital of the United States, but this is where more work is being done on incorporating all of this electronic wizardry. And I get way out of my depth on what electronic wizardry is with everything that we are doing with our industry. Uh, years ago, many, many years ago, when I first came to San Antonio, I used to like to, because I thought I was a cool airplane guy, joke about these cyber nerds and these computer nerds. And then I noticed something. That right there in front of our hangar at the property is a 787-8. That is actually ship number seven, the seventh 787 ever built. And if you get on that airplane, what you are going to find, it is not really an airplane. It is a flying computer system. The cars that you are driving around out there, unless you're driving a really old car, <laughs> is never turned off. It is always on, and it is a driving computer system. When you pull these nifty devices out of your pocket right here, you can access not only your entire financial history, if you know what you're doing as you drive past a gas station, you can access their entire financial history. <laughs> and so this is uh, really a tremendous strength of our community and our nation. What we have in San Antonio, you're very kind to give me credit for it. You're very kind to give UTSA credit for it. But we have been doing this work in this community since 1948. And what we have that very few places on earth have is a tremendously deep bench in all of this electronic wizardry and a tremendously deep bench on all of the critical infrastructure that we do in San Antonio. Airplanes, because it's the most important thing on earth. Manufacturing, healthcare. If you come down to Area 21, the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology, you're going to see a really crazy-looking robot. I had the opportunity to get up close and personal with that robot a couple of times. And it will get inside you, and it will do better surgery than any human can possibly do because it doesn't have joints, it doesn't have a pulse, it doesn't have any of that good stuff. It is controlled by a surgeon, and she's sitting about eight feet away from you. But imagine, if you would, that you're not eight feet away from the patient. You're eight miles away from the patient, or 80 miles, or 800 miles. Or maybe, if you would, 280,000 miles away from a patient. And this is the type of work that is being done in San Antonio that we can leverage the medical center, the great work that's done at the uh, San Antonio Military Medical Center up there at Fort Sam Houston. Because if you can stretch that connection which is a matter of communications latency and cybersecurity, as well as visualization, you can save lives. There is a little company, a Latino-led company at Port San Antonio called Night Aerospace. And what they have done is taken what looks like a shipping container, turned it into a flying hospital room, and it can go in the back of any broke-down cargo airplane that's big enough to hold it. So a C-130, a C-17, a C-5. And it can transport people in hospital conditions, or it can bring a hospital room to somebody. And one thing I love about the general is while he commands Army North, which is what really protects the homeland, he also understands that the real strength of the military is never having to use the military. And part of that is the disaster response. And so what we are doing by leveraging the medical center the research capabilities that we have in San Antonio, the cyber and electronic capabilities, as well as aircraft capabilities, is we are bringing the ability to bring medicine to people 
whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's an emerging area of the population, which allows us to access more resources and, frankly, make the world a little bit better place. And we can do that because San Antonio, relatively uniquely on the entire planet, has these capabilities together. And uh, UTSA, I am really, really thrilled. If you all see Dr. Amy, uh, give him a round of applause because I don't know how he's kept a lot of these programs here from being sucked up to Austin. I don't know how he's managing to run a university and solve all the community's problems with athletics, but he's doing all of it. But I also want to emphasize, and we're proud to have a formal agreement with UTSA. I'm proud to sit on the board of advisors at the engineering school. But we have in San Antonio multiple universities that have the National Security Agency, which may or may not exist, Department of Homeland Security, (laughs) seal of acceptance, and they are Our Lady of the Lake University. You think of it as a social work school, but it has one of the finest cyber programs in the country and the ability to intersect those. It is St. Philip's College and San Antonio College, both within the Alamo Colleges system. And I saw my good friend Joe Alderete here, uh, one of the trustees of Alamo Colleges. And we have Texas A&M, San Antonio, and UTSA. There are very few communities in the country that host one school that have those certifications, to have five that are open to students across the spectrum is really something special. Let's go back to Knight uh, Aerospace, because I remember uh, I was introduced to them by Marty Winder, Mm -hmm. who said that she, the owner, the CEO, was going more of a traditional route through traditional financing and trying to find land uh, to develop this facility. And he directed her to the port. Mm -hmm. And it seems like she has all of the surrounding support services that that better prepare her for what she's trying to do. Those hospitals, it really is an amazing concept to put a hospital in a container. You can fly it anywhere in the world and set up a a hospital in either, I'm assuming she does both civilian, uh, you know, disaster kind of, situation as well as military. It can be used for whatever application that you want. And we've had flying hospitals for decades, but a typical flying hospital is outrageously expensive and outrageously specialized. So primarily they're old DC-10s. There's an L-1011 flying around as an optics hospital. Actually, I think that just retired. But they're hard to maintain and they have one use. The beauty behind this night aerospace concept is I can take a C-130 this morning, put this pod into the back of it, fly it as a hospital, pull the pod out of it, put in a number of troops and fly them somewhere, pull the troops out of it, drive a Humvee into the back of it, fly that somewhere, fly it back, pick up the hospital room and fly those wounded warriors back home. And that becomes a tremendous cost savings advantage. And when we have a national security apparatus, and frankly, when we have a national government apparatus that just doesn't have enough money for the needs, the beauty behind this is not just the technology. It's the ability to do it in a way that creates an efficiency and allows for a multiple of uses of that same aircraft. And what I'll tell you is Bianca is a genius. She is a wonderful woman. Grew up in the Valley, uh, came up here, went to UT Austin. I think she was a cheerleader, actually, at UT Austin. She knows less about computers and less about medicine than I do. She is an accountant and a very, very good accountant. But sometimes you get these ideas that don't come from people who spent a career in aviation or a career in medicine. 
just looking at something from a different perspective. And I guess that's the beauty of the port is what you have there and how it can attract specialized industries to help them grow and prosper. It, it is. So we are very, very blessed in that we have such capabilities within our community that we can connect. We've got another secret sauce. I see my board chair, Margaret Wilson and Alia sitting right here in the front. And our immediate past board chair, Chris Alderete, is back there. And they, uh, they deserve a round of applause because we have a bunch of our port leadership here. They, we are technically a real estate development company. We are supposed to be building real estate and leasing real estate and managing real estate. What they allow us to do is uh, somewhat unorthodox. So some of these companies, Night Aerospace, a little outfit called Plus One Robotics, they come to us. They're not credit tenants. Sometimes they don't have two dimes to put together. And what we can find is creative ways because we are not solely driven by profit. What we are driven by is finding ways to make our community and, frankly, our nation better. And that sounds really trite. But it reminds me, um, I'm a huge Disney fan because I'm awkward and weird. (laughs) Walt Disney Company never told their Imagineers, find a way to make money. The Imagineers, the architects, the designers, the engineers that put the parks together. They said, find a way to make people happy. You know why they did that? It's not because any of those folks sitting there in the executive office really care about people. They care about money because it's Hollywood. (laughs) If you tell an architect, an engineer, or designer to make money, they have no idea how to do it. If you tell them make people happy, Y'all ever been to Disneyland, Disney World, Disneyland Paris? You're happy, right? You get this feeling of warmth in your heart. And what happens? You see that $20 pair of ears that cost them about a buck fifty. You see that hotel that costs 900 bucks a night. That meal that sort of looks French but really came out of a microwave that you're going to pay 100 bucks for. Well, that's what... I think if you were to talk to Margaret or Chris or the board of directors, they tell you, is that our strategy was not go out and maximize real estate value. It was create an ecosystem that attracts talent, that brings people in and shows them these opportunities exist so that we can pan for gold within the talent. Build something that is aspirational, that shows that we are a community that really does compete with the best and the brightest and continue to invest the revenues that we make back into what we do. So let me brag on our organization a second. We have some of our geniuses like Kara and Sophia. I see Dr. Shante Hall in the back, Juan Antonio. In the five years that we've done this strategy, we have more than doubled our top-line revenue. We've more than doubled our net operating income. We've added 8,000 jobs to the campus. We have built and fully leased 750,000 square feet of offices and laboratory space. And that is all spectacular. There's very few developers in the country that can say they've done that. But what we are really proud about, you mentioned the Boeing Center. For some reason, Margaret and company allowed us to spend $73 million building an entertainment center. And I told them straight up when we built this, we are never going to make a profit on this thing. Now, I, I just need to ask, as you have a reputation for being a 
uh, a rock fan. Mm -hmm. So was this your idea to bring in your favorite bands? It may or may not have been designed to get Parkway Drive and walk to town. (laughs) But here's what we did. Uh, In that building, all the profits that we generate, all those $20 beers, all those outrageously priced concerts, goes to our Kelly Heritage Foundation. And what the Kelly Heritage Foundation does is all these young people and not-so-young people that come to the campus, they get inspired because now they see the type of work that is open to them, the type of things that they are capable of doing, and many of them want to get involved in that. So this past year alone, the Kelly Heritage Foundation distributed $460,000 to direct-to-student programs. We had 100 kids from throughout the community come in and build their own gaming machines, their own computers, really, really high-end computers. They took those computers home with them. But the people who helped them build those computers were members of the 16th Air Force, Northrop Grumman, Booz Allen Hamilton, thank you, General, and a host of other companies. And these kids got to network with those folks. There are another group of kids that came in and they built their own drones, And what I love about drones is they're a hop, skip, and away from electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, flying taxis, you'll hear them called, flying cars. The kids got their commercial drone operator license, and they did that with folks from Boeing, with Northrop Grumman, with Raytheon, and a host of other companies. And then what's really, really exciting, if you go to the old commissary on our campus, I won't take you in there, but just trust me on this. There are two companies that are working on a system to robotically mine lunar rock, grind it and turn it into a filament, and then 3D print a building. And to do that all remotely, all robotically, so that we can build a lunar manufacturing facility from which we will launch satellites into orbit. Those satellites will capture solar radiation and wirelessly beam it back down to Earth. I won't take you into that building because it gets a little squirrely in there when they start melting rock. But I will take you over to the museum where you'll see a 15-foot-tall working printer that does all of this. And that 15-foot-tall working printer was built by a group of 8th to 12th grade students working with a group of college students working with the same scientists and engineers on that program. I'm going to show my age here, but growing up, we had the Jetsons, and we had Lost in Space, and we had a couple of My Favorite Martian, a couple of other futuristic-style shows. But the port seems to be where the rubber meets the road, you know, where you can actually see what's in existence now and what is what's on the horizon and what's about to be here. And I think that's what makes the facility so unique. It is. It is. So, so we have had a problem. Now I'm going to tell you something that's world affairs-y council because I'm going to try and be cool for a second. I'm no Sherry. We in the United States and the entire Western Hemisphere have a challenge. We have become so accustomed to operating based upon quarterly financial results, weekly financial results, so concerned about making sure that we fit the orthodoxy of what actually works that we are finding ourselves starting to lose ground to the other nations out there. And on one hand, that may not be the worst thing on earth, but we like to win, right? We like to be ahead. And so this entire experiment, not just the Boeing Center, but this entire tech port model, grew out of a very nerdy conversation that happened outside a building that may or may not exist in Virginia. 
And what we were talking about was this. It used to be that we did really audacious things in the United States. And we did that with a lot of weird people. I could tell you the stories about what Jack Parsons was really like. But he was also founding Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And after that conversation, I sent this little note around to my equally nerdy friends that we could use Port San Antonio, the old Kelly Air Force Base, to attract a whole bunch of people who normally would never talk to the defense industrial base, to find a material number of those people who decided they wanted to be a part of this and to create a self-sustaining model of creating pathways to education and opportunity for people, which is not just a good thing to do. When you're trying to run a business, you need to have that talent coming in. And we could identify at least two technologies that had an application to aviation and defense that nobody would have thought of. And um, a mentor of mine, a really great guy who'd been in and out of government and corporate sector, wrote me an email that was seven pages long when I printed it out. And it boiled down to this. You don't have a front-end gatekeeper, so you're going to deal with a lot of crazy people. And I wrote him back and I said, with all respect, and I meant that, this was not me being obnoxious, that's what we have to do. Because we have become so beholden to doing the same thing over and over again that we can't see new opportunities. So here's what happened. On the student side, we have had over 200,000 kids come down to our campus. And for a defense industrial campus that has tried to keep people out, that is amazing. And we did that without the Boeing Center. We did that with an old 3,000-square-foot chapel. Out of that, we got a number of young people who got so excited on what they are doing. They pursued collegiate careers. They matched up with opportunities. We can show that it's a self-sustaining workforce. And the model that we are shooting for with the Boeing Center is not financial stability. We're going to get there, but that's a byproduct of we want 150,000 people a year to come through that building. And just 1% pull the number out of our rear end to be inspired enough that they want to pursue some opportunities. And that is 1,500 net recruitable, net employable people funded through the sales of beer and concerts. And nobody else has done that. And then on the technology side, we, uh, through the museum, met a couple of people who came down because they wanted to see an Enigma machine. Got to talking to them. And it turns out they were looking at putting sensor technology, artificial intelligence, and machine learning as a sensor suite on the back of industrial robots. And they were doing that because they heard that there was a real opportunity in e-commerce to try and solve that Tetris problem of how you handle the stuff coming down the conveyor line. Nobody else wanted to talk to them. Margaret and Chris were kind enough to let me put them up in a little building. They didn't have anything resembling credit. Today, Plus One Robotics, we're about four years later, has over $100 million in funding. They've opened an office in the Netherlands. They've opened an office out in Colorado. Because if you can move a robot from a controlled environment into an uncontrolled environment, well, by golly, we can start mining the moon, right? It solves a piece of that problem that NASA, the United States government, U.S. Space Command, and our entire defense industrial base were struggling with. There's another one that I'm even more excited about. At the end of our runway, we have a 72-foot-tall robot with a 20-kilowatt laser attached to its arm. 
I know General Evans would love to get his hand on it because it's a directed energy weapon for the future. We could technically point it at the Frost Bank building downtown and give that thing a haircut. (laughs) I've promised Dan Geddes I'm not going to do that. What it does is it takes the paint off of an airplane, and it does it in 60% less time than the traditional way of doing it. And it saves hundreds of gallons of chemicals that will absolutely kill you, 4,000 gallons of water that you don't want anywhere near your drinking water, and 30 tons of carbon dioxide per airplane. In addition to all of that environmental savings and occupational savings, it means you don't need to build about a $100 million stripping hangar. And here's the net impact. Can I trust you all not to tell Putin something? (laughs) We have been funding about 67% of our expected sustainment needs, at least across the aviation community. And what that means, if you do your basic math, is about one-third of our fleet is grounded at any point in time. On the commercial aviation side, we have commoditized this because you can't maintain an airplane without taking the paint off and putting the airplane back on. So a lot of work has been far offshore. By this system, we can not only redirect those dollars back into readiness because of the capital and operational dollar savings, we can bring that work back and transition those mechanics who are working on a very dangerous and, in many cases, degrading job and put them to a higher value job of putting these aircraft to better and more efficient use. And none of this would have been possible without bringing people from different perspectives together, looking at these problems from different perspectives, and not accepting any crazy ideas that come down. But there is plenty of ways to go back and iteratively and progressively decide whether something works or not. So what we really have is an experiment, an experimental prototyping, that seems to be working. A few years ago, I was in Washington, and I was having a conversation with uh, U.S. Senator Jerry Moran from Kansas, who was uh, directing his anger towards me because I was from San Antonio, and they lost the contract for maintenance for Air Force One, and they lost it to the port. Yep. Well, um, we didn't steal anything from Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of reasons for that, and... and, um, I'm sensitive to it because I may or may not have had something to do with that. <laughs> Here is the uh, the value of San Antonio and why Air Force One is here. Air Force One is essentially a flying command post. There's another plane that's actually more important called E-4B, which is the Defense Secretary's airplane. And to do this really well, You need people who understand the airframe and the engine can keep something flying reliably and consistently. And in San Antonio, we have some of the best aircraft technicians anywhere on the planet, bar none. But you also have an awful lot of electronic wizardry that has to get put into those aircraft. Here in San Antonio, we are blessed. There's an organization called the 16th Air Force. All you need to know about that, you'll hear it called Air Force Cyber, but it's not really cyber. Before you go any further... Does the 16th Air Force exist unlike the NSA, which may or may not exist? The 16th Air Force absolutely exists. Okay, just checking. And they will tell you where it is. It's on (laughs) Google Maps. They own all of that electronic wizardry. And so in San Antonio, when you need to make sure that you are building a platform that is reliable, that is efficient, that works, and that has the most up-to-graded wizardry in it, you really want to be in San Antonio. 
And so that Air Force One program, VC-25A, C-32, C-40, bringing those down here was because of those capabilities. E-4B, please do not tell G, is also maintained here in San Antonio, the Defense Secretary's airplane. A few years ago, uh, the United States Navy uh, picked Boeing to upgrade the F-A-18. The F-A-18 is really a wonderful airplane, even though it's a naval aircraft. And and I say that because naval aircraft are inherently compromised because you have to land on a carrier, which adds weight. That means that that airplane is going to really, really, really wear down quickly. And it's easy to send that to a company like Boeing and say, we need you to replace the landing gear, we need you to replace the tail hook, all that kind of good stuff. But part of it, uh, you may be familiar with the F-35 and the F-22, we can't afford to move to an entirely fifth-generation air fleet. And so part of the F-A-18 program, and a reason that we were able to bring a good chunk of that to San Antonio, was it was a targeting and weapon system communications upgrade. There is an awful lot of building the future of that aircraft together. It doesn't hurt that we have the 16th Air Force here. There is a program coming down the pike, and this you can tell Putin, you can tell anybody, We really should have modernized and replaced the E-4B fleet years ago. They're just about my age. Two of them are my age. A few months ago, actually about a year ago, uh, we did the craziest ever press conference because it was a completely classified press conference. Everybody there, the fake newscasters, everything else. We inducted into San Antonio a B-52 for what is now, we can tell you, is the radar modernization program. That airplane is going to fly for 100 years, but it needs to consistently be upgraded. And so some of the most advanced electronic systems anywhere on the planet are being installed in that airplane. And it is Boeing, it is Northrop Grumman, it is a host of companies. But there's a reason that it's in San Antonio. There are few places in the country, few places in the world, where you have all of these capabilities in one place, and you can bring it together. So we are tremendously blessed to have the 16th Air Force because the Army made a decision in 1948. As a community, though, we need to make sure that we keep that here. And this is another thing that uh, is an innovative thing we're doing in San Antonio. The uh, United States Department of Defense, at some point in the near future, is going to become the first trillion-dollar business anywhere on the planet. And it is growing to the point that is not sustainable. And we have, throughout the installation enterprise, which means the physical bases, forts, posts, uh, everything, camps, a bunch of infrastructure that is falling apart, no way to build the new infrastructure. At Port San Antonio, we are also working on ways that we can more efficiently and more effectively build buildings that not only are significantly cheaper than the way that they are done through MILCON, in some cases 50%, 60% cheaper, but they can be designed and operated so that they incorporate human performance factors into them. If you've seen what the San Antonio Spurs are doing up at the Rock, it is really groundbreaking work in terms of maximizing human performance for elite athletes. But think about how you perform. Think about how people perform. Because what they are doing to enhance the performance of elite athletes can very easily be transitioned into enhancing the performance of airmen, soldiers, Marines, or just regular folks like us.
And you're going to see that happening. So you've talked about buildings and you've talked about being a real estate facility. Do you have a picture of your new the building? New building? Yeah. I think we have it somewhere. Where'd this silly thing go? There we go. Because I, I mean, it's, it's a very inspiring building. So tell us the story behind this. I mentioned all the good that we do here in San Antonio. I knew about San Antonio when I was a little kid in Israel, when I was a little kid in London, when I was a little kid in California. And I've always had the utmost respect for what goes on here in San Antonio. And then I moved here. And all I heard about is how there's no tech, no opportunity, no jobs in San Antonio. When I first got this job, I had the opportunity. Paco Felici is here somewhere. He goes to every community association meeting. There's Paco in the back. I think he goes to every neighborhood association meeting in San Antonio. And I went uh, with him to one, and I was talking to these folks about what we do at Port San Antonio, what our customers do, and where the opportunities are. And a really wonderful older woman came up to me, and she said, Jim, you're doing the wrong thing. And I said, why? And she said, because those aren't jobs for the people in our community. We can't do that stuff. We need factory jobs. We need warehouse jobs. And that's nonsensical. So this building, the concept behind this, was we wanted something that was aspirational, that spoke to people, that said, we do this stuff in San Antonio and you can do it as well. And for the people listening to this podcast, describe this is a state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, futuristic building. Absolutely state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, futuristic building. It's not going to have bathroom stalls in it. Every bathroom is going to be completely enclosed like you're in a United Polaris Lounge. We are spending a lot of money per bathroom to upgrade them to the standard. And the first thing people do is laugh at me. How many of you all stop at Bucky's when you're driving somewhere? <laughs> now, everybody wants their employees to come back to work. Nobody wants to say come back to work. Why do people not like being in the workplace? Because there's a level of stress, right? If you're at home and you have your own bathroom, your own kitchen, your own couch, it's a more comfortable environment. If you have the ability not to constantly be in front of people. Think about the workplace for the past 20 years where we did these open office environments. Everybody's on stage all the time. It stresses people out. It makes people uncomfortable. This building isn't going to have that. And so what this does is this makes an environment that is nicer than work. People rise to being what they believe they can be and what you tell them they can be. And so the reason for building that tower was not because it made economic sense. It was telling the people of that community, you are worthy of this. This building makes zero economic sense. We could throw up a very nice Class A tilt wall building for a fraction of the price. But most of the people that we're talking to with this building are never going to walk into this building. What you can't tell is we can project light shows like a poor man's sphere on the outside of this building. Because what we want to do is to show the community that they are deserving of something of this quality. We want the people who come to see us to recognize that San Antonio is a place where amazing things are happening. Wow. Well, we're very excited about this, and I, uh, I can't wait to share this. Um, we're, I'm going to ask one more question. In a 2020 study by the uh, Society of Human Resource Management, they said that 
85% of jobs in the year 2030 didn't exist in 2020 when the study was done. Uh, What I see with the port is it's an entity that's maybe more so than any other uh, industry or uh, campus is heavily focused on the future and constantly building towards the future. So you have the um, Museum of Science and Technology there. Um, You're now hosting the San Antonio Hispanic Chambers Core 4 STEM Expo Mm -hmm. to bring... A thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand kids on the campus to understand the concepts of science, technology, engineering, and math, to expose them to the beautiful concepts of and the the career opportunities in the STEM fields. You have other things that you do on the campus. So talk about why it's important for students to understand this is a place to be in a place to go to, uh, even if it's just understanding what the future may hold? I, th- that's a wonderful question. That's I, why I asked it. But, you're a brilliant uh, man, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I see as the challenge. I remember back when I was in junior high, uh, they brought in somebody to talk to us who told us that by the time we were adults, our life was going to be worse than our parents. We weren't going to be as well off as they were. Most of the country was going to be owned by the Japanese, and our entire base was going to be gone. And none of that came to pass. But the world is, in some respects, different. If you go back to the time of Charles Dickens, uh, Bob Cratchit's job was replaced by Google Books or Quicken Books. Jobs get replaced all the time. We are, for whatever reason, uh, living in a time where it is really easy to take a fatalistic, defeatist approach. And this concerns me a lot. I I could tell you all the reasons it concerns me because I think that foreign actors use this to exploit differences in our country for their own reasons. But more important, if you believe that your life is going to be a failure, you are going to fail. If you believe that you have an opportunity, you are going to find that opportunity. I don't know what the jobs are going to be like in 2030, 2040, 2050. I'm not going to be around for a whole lot of them. But I know a couple things. The world is empirically better today than it was 100 years ago. It is going to be empirically better 100 years from now than it is today. And what we need to do, especially now when so much information is available to people, is show them that there's always a great big beautiful tomorrow out there. And so we are putting outrageous amounts of money, millions of dollars, into education, into bringing people down, into creating what is on one sense nonsensical buildings like that. But I'm not telling you that we're going to change the world. What I'm hoping we do is we create that sense of optimism. So rise up and do it. Well, with that, please help me thank Jim Persbach from Port San Antonio. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Beyond the Bite. For more information on Port San Antonio, go to portsanantonio.us. And for more information on the World Affairs Council of San Antonio, go to wacofsa.org. Beyond the Bite is a production of Aldrete Strategic Partners and is edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. Until next time, 
We thank you for listening. 